Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. I think Australia is still not ready to come to terms with what's actually happening and the sheer brutality of the justice system because I think they can look over at America and say, oh, yeah, but the police are just, look at them over there, you know. And they still see police here as good people. So I think there are several reasons behind it, but at its heart it's about the fact that Aboriginal lives in Australia still don't matter and Australians really have to come to terms with that and we have to change that perception. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight, as part of our RN Summer, we're revisiting another of our most important and informative conversations of the past year. Following the death of African-American man George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis, rallies were held in up to 60 countries worldwide, protesting racism and police brutality. It began with a hashtag in 2013, but today the Black Lives Matter movement is a global phenomenon. Here in Australia, the focus has largely been on the number of black deaths in custody, which have been steadily climbing since the release of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody almost 30 years ago. Despite more than 437 black deaths in custody over that time, many of the recommendations that came out of the Royal Commission are yet to be implemented. Justice advocates say compounding the problem is a culture of over-policing of Aboriginal communities, resulting in alarming incarceration rates. Adding to the issue is a seeming lack of political will to tackle the complexities of our justice systems. Earlier in the year, a national meeting of attorneys general deferred a decision on raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14. As it stands, Aboriginal children are disproportionately impacted by the current laws, while further questions have been raised around police accountability and the notion of the rule of law in Australia. In August, a panel of experts came together to discuss how best to address these alarming trends and prevent further black deaths in custody. Tonight, you'll hear from journalist and PhD student Amy McGuire, Senior Indigenous Fellow at the Melbourne University Law School, Eddie Cabillo, Lawyer, Poet and Senior Researcher, Alison Whitaker, Human Rights Lawyer and Director of the National Justice Project, George Newhouse, and Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at the Melbourne University Law School, Dr Amanda Porter. We'll pick up the conversation with Eddie Cabillo and his reflections on the death of George Floyd. Um, yeah, look, I got very emotional when I saw it. You know, you, you get pretty hardened to the world of this sort of stuff, Indigenous people, when you work in this space and, you know, you continually confronted with it. But then I got really emotional when um, he started to cry out for his mother. I just thought this this has been happening that long in um, this country, you know, since even 1788 it's been going on. And despite, you know, as, as it's been mentioned, there's been a Royal Commission and 339 recommendations, the numerous coronals which people speak about on here, and the continuation even after that is those reviews and, and recommendations of, of the deaths that keep happening. I wondered if it's just this country's apathy towards our people and our families that suffer in these conditions. And then I just thought again that we've had all these recommendations and and discussions and, and, and you know, every year we the same things continually to happen and our people and our elders, you know, when we, you speak to them or you recall, they always tell you that, you know, they endured what they did because of, they want to change for, for the future generations and 
And we just continually experienced it. And, you know, you sort of get really sad, and but then you get angry. And, and, I, and I thought about my kids and grandkids. And then I thought, there's got to be more to this. And I'm still wondering how we go forward. Amy, it always strikes me, we have a moment like this and, and the rest of Australia seems to wake up to what Indigenous Australia has been saying for a really long time. And your reporting particularly has been really diligent around deaths in custody particularly and victims of crime. I was just wondering what your response was as to why it's this footage at this time that seems to have sparked a response that cases that you've been reporting on haven't and what you make of the current situation. Definitely. I think the thing with the footage of George Floyd was it was just so blatant and there was an acknowledgement that there was a clear perpetrator when I saw the footage, I also thought of all the, the fact that we've had CCTV footage showing the brutalisation of Aboriginal bodies continually. And I remember Miss Jew's footage and the fact the family really had to fight for the coroner to release it. And it was released just before Christmas and it was on TV and yet it didn't seem to create the same level of outcry. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that, one, Australia is comfortable with Aboriginal people being in jail they see Aboriginal people as disposable. They can't understand the reality. I think with George Floyd's death, it was such an obvious blatant case of police brutality. They can't understand the role of state-sanctioned violence and, and the fact that when Aboriginal people end up in jail, it's often the result of multiple layers of state-sanctioned violence that have led them there plus the end result. So they don't seem to understand that because obviously their privilege and their where they are, their prosperity is built upon that violence. So it's, uh, yeah, about the disposability of Aboriginal lives, the fact we don't look at state-sanctioned violence, and also the fact that I know when we see this footage, there's never the calls for the perpetrator. The perpetrator is absent. And I think that's a clear part of it. And so as a result of that, Aboriginal people are seen as being responsible for their own deaths inside. And CCTV footage, obviously, it's in a private space in a sense. So we have to fight for that footage to be released. So I think there's a whole host of reasons of why um, it doesn't create the same level of outrage. And I think Australia is still not ready to come to terms with what's actually happening and the sheer brutality of the justice system, because I think they can look over at America and say, oh, yeah, but the police are just, look at them over there, you know. And they still see police here as good people, even though we have numerous examples of them acting against their own people, against white people as well, you know. We've had several cases in Queensland where police have been involved in domestic violence incidents and that's come up in the media. So there's still this perception that that police are at the most, at the heart, protectors because they see themselves in the police. So I think there, there are several reasons behind it, but at its heart it's about the fact that Aboriginal lives in Australia still don't matter um, and Australians really have to come to terms with that and we have to change that perception. George, I might bring you in now because obviously you'd worked very closely on the David Dungay case and were one of the first people who started to articulate the similarities between that case and George Floyd. And I wonder if you could share your observations about that and also the role the families had to play in that case to get some justice. I think I was astounded by the similarity between the image of the four officers kneeling mostly on George Floyd and the image of four security officers in Long Bay Prison on David Dungay Jr.'s back. And I think it was that image that really drew Australians' attention to the similarities between the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States 
and what was going on in our own country. I think uh, we live in denial, I think, for a whole number of reasons. Amy's raised one, that our prosperity as a nation is built on the theft of another people's land and on the near destruction of their culture. And I think Australians are blind or intentionally blind to what's going on because of the original sin in the creation of our nation. But to answer your question, Larissa, David Dungay died on the 29th of December, 2015. I remember the day when the family gave me a call. He was a patient in a hospital. New South Wales is the only state in the country which has a prison hospital. In all other states and territories, if you're sick, you go to a hospital. In New South Wales, you're in a prison hospital. And it was that hybrid sick environment that led to David's death. He was 26 years old. He was a proud Dungari man. And he was a diabetic. And on the day that he died, he'd registered a high level of sugar in his blood. But that really, the evidence that we heard at the inquest was that really wasn't going to cause him any you know, serious injury or death. And there was no need for any action to be taken against David. But prison guards got involved unnecessarily in David's death. And we claimed at the inquest on behalf of the family that there was some kind of power struggle going on between the guards who demanded that David give up his one pleasure, a packet of biscuits, on some spurious basis that they felt that he might have high blood sugar. That led to a chain of events that ended up in David dying. And although there's been many positive recommendations that came out of that inquest, the family are still disappointed because they say if an Indigenous man or four Indigenous men had put their weight on a non-Indigenous man, they would all be in jail today. They would all be in jail. But the coroner did not make any recommendations to hold anyone accountable for David's death not even a WorkSafe complaint. Now, the family are quite rightly disappointed and very distressed about what passes for justice in our country. And I think that's one of the open wounds that we have. Now, we haven't given up. We're still working with the family on seeking justice, but I think there's still a lot of unfinished business in that case. Alison, this is an area you cover closely and you've actually done some really important research on the role of linguistics in coronial inquests and the role of language in absolving blame of key actors, especially police and prison guards in relation to deaths in custody. With that background and understanding, what are your thoughts around the current media attention on Black Lives Matter? And I'm also interested in your thoughts on whether this is a a moment of hope, a transformative moment, or whether you think it might just be a temporary reprieve. Mm. I'm torn because I I really want this to kind of be a a moment of hope for the families that have spent so much time and dedication and expertise in their own right pushing this issue into the Australian public. But we've also seen moments like this before, inspired by Black Lives Matter events in the US, like what happened in Ferguson after the death of Michael Brown. And unfortunately, the momentum has kind of petered out. And I'm really frightened that with media reporting increasingly focusing on the Black Lives Matter rallies, rather than the asks of those rallies, that we kind of risk falling into that same pattern 
There's also concern for me that the discussions that are happening in the media are not as driven by families and communities as they ought to be. So families and communities are often invited on as witnesses to what's happening, but they're also experts in their own right. So even before this was a matter of public consciousness, I suppose, families who have loved ones in prison or had lost loved ones in prison had put out quite a comprehensive plan on how to keep mobs safe by getting them out of prison. Uh, And you can check that out. It's an open letter on the ALS New South Wales website called Clean Out Prisons. And other movements as well in the recent months have put out their own plans for how we actually address and give right to, I guess, our commitment to saying that Black Lives Matter. It's also a marathon and it's going to take a lot of sustained coverage to keep this in the public consciousness. So it requires coverage that's both sustained and on the ground. And so what do we do when there's kind of less specific media coverage, when families are under-resourced by state and other legal resources when they go to the coroner's court? And what does it mean when it's really, really difficult to sustain media attention outside of whatever's trending, whatever can be captured in a movement? That said, I hold out a tiny bit of hope because the window of acceptable discourse on this is really changing. I'm seeing things in public discussions that I would never have dreamt of seeing in 2020, people talking really, really seriously about defunding the police and prison abolition and self-determination, who I'd never heard the words come out of their mouth before. And that's not to say that, that that's a kind of backing on their part. There's still so much work to do. But we've managed to get it into the realm of contestable, serious ideas. And that is a start that has me really, really excited. I was going to ask Amy this question a little down the track, but it feels like it's a good time to bring her back in because there's a fair bit of what Alison said that is about the media and particularly about the lack of support for victims of crime. And I think one of the things that's really strong about your reporting, Amy, when you have looked at particularly deaths in custody is that you really do focus on the impact on family and community. And I was wondering if you had any additional thoughts on the issues that Alison had raised, but also what you think might be some changes necessary to better support Aboriginal families who have had relatives die in custody and who have to fight so hard and for such prolonged period of time for justice and for voice. Yeah, I think Alison raised a number of really important issues and for me it always came down to the fact that families have to fight so hard just to get any form of media coverage and I think we saw that in the differences, not to put the two cases against each other, but the differences in Ani Tenya Day's inquest and uh, Miss Ma. And it was just incredibly sad because Miss Ma's inquest, it did not have the coverage that it deserved. And we saw that the narrative on how she um, died and what happened to her case was totally changed from what her family were actually calling for. And the owners shouldn't be on the families to do that work. I know with Miss Jude, her uncle Sean Harris had to travel around the country. He slept at the Ten Embassy for two weeks. Um, he got up this huge contact list of journalists that he would call just to get any recognition that the life of his niece actually mattered and it deserved coverage. But it's not only that, it's about what happens when the coronial inquest actually occurs and, and the way journalists report and they don't challenge a lot of the biases or the accepted discourse within the coroner's inquest. So we actually need training around how media can actually recognise what's actually happening here in the bigger picture, what's happening in coronial inquests. 
But I think for me as well, um, when Q&A happened and we had Latona Dungay on national TV calling for the panel to actually back her calls for criminal convictions against the guards, the next day we heard nothing. And, in fact, I didn't even really hear the panellists back her claims and I thought that was just such a missed opportunity and it wasted, you know, like often we just we put out the, you know, the sorrow and the grief of these families on display as if it's entertainment and then nothing comes of it. So there's no um, accountability for the media as well. You know, even the fact that a coronial inquest isn't the end result. You know, we want actual outcomes after the coronial inquest. So I think there's just, there's so much that has to be done in relation to media reporting. And a lot of the focus is on mainstream media. But for me, it's about actually trying to build up a solid black media, because I think it's going to be Aboriginal media who's going to be at every single inquest. So the challenge for me is how we train up a workforce of Aboriginal journalists that are actually trained to do this, because I know a lot of the time, you know, you might go, it might be your first time reporting on a coronial inquest. You don't have that experience or ability to actually be able to sort of understand what's really happening. But just building up black media to be able to really contest what's actually happening. I think the focus a lot has been on mainstream media, but we really have to start. I mean, that's what black media is about really starting to build up a really solid workforce so we can have journalists at every coronial inquest so the families don't have to take on that burden. You know, I, I just, I, I always feel for the families and and seeing, you know, there may be coverage around an inquest and then a week later it's all gone and nothing's changed. And then the next month another death in custody happens and the cycle starts over again. I mean, you can't break that trauma or that grief, you know. So I think um, trying to take a lot of that burden off the families as much as possible is really important. Yeah, I think there's just so much we have to do as media and sometimes I feel I haven't done enough either. And so, yeah, I think the challenge is just really on to keep ourselves accountable because we are ultimately accountable to our communities. I think you've done a lot (laughs) and certainly given space for voice for people who are being overlooked by the mainstream media. So I think there's a lot of other people who could be doing some heavy lifting as well. So I want to ask you, Eddie, we do put a lot of focus on police training, You've worked at the coalface of the legal system for many, many years now, and you are continuing within uh, your academic work to look at the role of the legal profession. And I was wondering if you could share your reflections on what role the legal profession should be playing in terms of change. I ask a lot of other professions, but for people who've actually come through law schools, are academics or are lawyers practising, what are the sorts of things that you think the profession should be doing and doing better? Yeah, well, we've had that many reports and recommendations made advising us to do that, particularly around Aboriginal disadvantage and over-representation. Just unfortunately, government, you know, time after time, they they just fail to properly implement these recommendations. Big picture, I think there needs to be more empowerment of um, our people to um, be in charge, you know, of our own destinies and have a say on what happens in our communities and and elsewhere. But we need to be taken seriously, I think. Just recently, the, the Aboriginal Legal Services, the Attorney General's Department did a review on them and... Mostly they ignored their own review to, um, you know, mainstream their funding and stuff like that. So they're not only trying to do the service provision, but they're also trying to survive. So there's all that sort of issues. But I think to bring change in the justice system, you know, there needs to be recognition and actual acceptance that the legal institutions and the justice system has failed Indigenous people. And the legal profession needs to show some leadership and acknowledge that they have been somewhat complicit and, um, you know, they need to end their acceptance of the status quo. I mean, don't get me wrong, they deliver um, 
submissions and, you know, the Law Reform Commission recently done a, a great report which government didn't respond to. Um, the Law Council of Australia recently done a report and it's a great report, but then that's it. There's nothing done after when um, people continually ignore it. And I don't say this lightly, but again, is it the apathy and affront to the rule of law and the right of all to be treated equally under this law? You know, the ever-increasing numbers of our mob that are incarcerated, child removal, deaths in custody, tell the profession that there is an extreme, you know, injustice going on and that more is needed than their basic advocacy. I mean, there's more that they can do and I think it needs to take a hard line and at the moment we're not getting that. And, you know, every time you raise these sort of issues in, in a forum that people there who can make some make some real change or, or look going down a different road, they're too happy to stay in the status quo and, and, and allow things to happen. And we can be highly even more critical and say, you know, a lot of people are making their money on the back of blackfellas and, and, and also the reality that the QC ships and, and other positions in, in that system. So it's really frustrating and I, I really think that it's, it's the profession now that one of their major principles of law, the rule of law and, and equality before the law, is really at being tested and, and, and where they really are in their profession. Thanks, Eddie. I want to now bring you in on this, George, because Eddie does raise these issues about the importance of the way the profession conducts itself in relation to law reform. You obviously have worked a lot with Indigenous families and have formed strong partnerships with other Indigenous groups doing this kind of work. From your perspective, and assuming there are quite a lot of people who are listening who would be non-Indigenous lawyers, what is the responsibility of the profession in terms of reform on these issues? Well, that's a very broad question. But before I answer it, I just want to say this. After listening to both Eddie and Amy, it's not your job, nor is it the job of uh, traumatised families to generate change in this country. It's our nation's responsibility. Whilst, of course, we need everyone's input, there's a lot of responsibility that's put on individuals and families. The system is supposed to identify and pick up this racist policy, or a number of racist policies. And if you look at, for example, deaths in custody and inquests, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody intended that inquests were to be quite powerful review mechanisms. Over 30 years, that's been dwindled away and you get coroners who aren't really interested in Aboriginal deaths in custody. It's just another matter that they've got to get off their desk. Now, that's not all coroners, but I've seen it in my experience. And I think if we really want to see reform in this process, let's appoint Indigenous coroners to lead the, uh, inquiries into deaths in custody. Let's expand the terms of reference and not limit it under the measly jurisdiction in the Coroners Act. There needs to be real legislative reform. And let's put some Indigenous people with life experience who understand what racism and discrimination means in charge of the process. And what can lawyers do? First of all, I think as a non-Indigenous person and all of us in the profession who aren't Indigenous, we need to acknowledge that there is systemic discrimination in prison, in health, in policing, in youth detention, in child removals. In fact, in probably almost every arm of our governments, it exists. And yet, if you talk to most lawyers, they will not acknowledge that. We need to support Indigenous organisations in their campaigns. We need to get involved with current campaigns. Now, I know that there's an inquiry just been called 
by the New South Wales Upper House. I know Jambana's put a call out for action. There's some really strong recommendations for decarceration, defunding police and putting the funding into social services, drug reform, stop criminalising drugs and treat them as health issues. We need also to provide access to justice. Eddie talks about the QCs who are making money off Indigenous people, and there's some truth in that. But there's a lot of areas in the law where there is no money in providing access to justice. And those areas are abandoned by lawyers. They are not there providing access to justice for Indigenous people. And either we fund the Aboriginal legal services or similar services, or lawyers have to step up and start doing their job. And I think finally, it's it's voice treaty truth. Lawyers need to buy into that. Give Indigenous people a voice and listen to them and what their real needs are. Treaty to come to some understanding and engagement and tell the truth about what's happening. And the coronial process is truth-telling. It's supposed to be truth-telling. And it's about finding a positive way forward. And it's not happening. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we're revisiting a conversation featured on the program in August, which took an in-depth look at the issues of police accountability and the idea of the rule of law in Australia. In particular, the culture of our legal systems that have failed to stem the growing number of Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission released its findings almost 30 years ago. Joining in the conversation were journalist and PhD student Amy Maguire, Senior Indigenous Fellow at the Melbourne University Law School, Eddie Cabillo. Lawyer, poet and senior researcher Alison Whitaker, human rights lawyer and director of the National Justice Project, George Newhouse, and senior fellow of Indigenous programs at the Melbourne University Law School, Dr Amanda Porter. Let's hear more now and we'll pick up the conversation with Alison Whitaker as she provides her thoughts on the improvements she thinks need to be made to police and judicial training. Of the plans that have been kind of raised, including by by John Bonner and by families, like training is either not there or is kind of in the, the lowest rung of priorities. And just to kind of explain for anyone present, so one of the really big features of inquests into Black deaths in custody is that they love to talk about training. It's one of their favourite subject matters to get a hold of. For for anyone who's not really familiar with the coronial process, every death in custody is referred to the coroner for an inquest where all manner of parties can be represented, including their family, including police, hospitals, etc. And then a coroner kind of comes along and makes findings and recommendations about the death and sometimes refers the death on to prosecutors. But the recommendations, and this is, I have to flag, this is just preliminary findings of much longer research project and won't have final results for a little while. But findings and recommendations about information deficits being a contributing cause to the death or information process failures being a cause of the death, they're the two biggest groups of recommendations that coroners seem to make for Black deaths in custody. And that requires a lot of faith on our part in saying that The problem of black deaths in custody isn't racism, it's that people don't know better. And that's kind of the deficit that training would have to bridge. And I just, I'm I'm not sure I have faith 
in that argument in the same way that I have faith that this is a structural problem with a penal colony that needs to be addressed more broadly structurally rather than by doing things that coroners have recommended and that has had somewhat limited take-up by states, although there is no monitoring, things like changing intake forms or things like cultural competency training. And just on that point as well, I want to raise that in the inquest into the death of Auntie Tanya Day, V-Line and other bodies' cultural competency training or awareness training was actually front and centre of the inquiry for, I think, the first week. And in that, some actually really quite racist training was brought to the fore. There's no international standard, really. There's no kind of quality control and kind of training that people receive. And so the training that people who had a great deal of power and control over the life and subsequently the killing of Ani Tanya Day had, they had a whole heap of training behind them that was just effectively racial profiling. So I think that the faith that we put in training, even more generally anti-racist training in the shadow of Black Lives Matter is really concerning, both because it individualises these problems and kind of makes them uh, look like well-intentioned mistakes, which is something families have been continually pushing against in the coronial process. And on the other hand, it, it kind of creates this knowledge economy that can sometimes distract us from the really, really serious questions at hand. Eddie, another strategy that's often put forward as well is this idea of a top-down approach. And that has been, I guess, the thinking behind the real push for justice targets as part of Close the Gap. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that strategy of the top-down target, what it can achieve and what might its shortcomings be. And, of course, there was justice targets recently proposed by the Minister and what your thoughts were about those. Yeah, look, I saw the media on the um, targets recently. They weren't public yet, but, um, you know, they wanted to have reduced rates of adults some 15% and then parity by 2093. I just thought I'd be dead by then. And, you know, it just sort of who's um, agreeing to these benchmarks. Surely our um, organisations aren't agreeing to that benchmark and we don't know what sort of position that they are in in these negotiations, considering that the last decade there's been no justice targets and, you know, even the National Indigenous Justice Framework that they put in to cover that had no new monies attached to that framework and no state really took that up. And that's, to be fair on them, that, that's pretty fair, I think. And the other reality around that is, that framework's out of date now for some five to six years and, and no one's done anything. So it really, um, it's a failed program, the um, Close the Gap. You know, the health have uh, over 10 years of KPIs and, and looking at them and annually they everybody goes to the parliament and to just be told what they already know because most of the information are coming from our organisations to advise government. So, yeah, I think it's a kicking that can down the road exercise for government. I think for our organisations that um, are at the coalface will now have to deal with states um, a lot more. And from the discussions that I've had with some of those um, organisations, they're quite confident at the moment that a lot of the states see some the need to really engage with our organisations. But um, if we go on history, that just can change at a next election. So it's really a worry. And I think, again, it, it comes back, as George said, to the big picture of everybody coming up and standing up and seeing that this is a huge blight on our country. You know, Indigenous Australians are only 3% of the population and, you know, we make up 28% of the um, prison population and, and it goes on and on. And 
I could tell you horror stories on regards to some of the discussions I've had around justice initiatives and how governments, you know, they think we can just bargain away rights and that when our people are seriously in dire straits and, well, we're not going to do that, but the reality is um, 3% of the population can't do that. So in short, I'll have to wait and see, but I think it's just a kick in our can down the road exercise and, yeah, there'll be be KPIs and that, but if the 2093 is still there, then that really will tell us, you know, how serious they are in regards to this whole, whole area. Thanks, Eddie. George, off the back of the Black Lives Matter movement in the States, the Minneapolis City Council voted to dismantle the police force there and replace it with a community-led public safety system. I was just wondering your thoughts on how significant that is and the extent to which you think that's a model that could be looked at elsewhere. All right. Do you mind if I'm a bit naughty and just follow on? Eddie's last <laughs> comments. I, I will get to the US, but I totally agree with Eddie's comments on closing the gap. I think it's worse than just kicking the can down the road. I think closing the gap is a distraction and we're measuring all the wrong things, right? In my view, as a white fella, I see closing the gap blaming the victims. If you look at it in healthcare, it's about how many people have diabetes or heart problems or are obese. We don't measure racism in the system. And when it comes to even the measure on decarceration, it's a very raw measure. Why aren't we measuring the difference between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people in terms of charges and strip searches and all the gateways into the prison system? We are not measuring racism We blame the victim, and that's what makes Australians feel better about themselves, non-Indigenous Australians, because we can then blame the victim of these racist policies. And if we really want to look at closing the gap, let's start measuring the right things instead of, you know, oh, look how bad people are. Look at the fact that they smoke or they're obese or whatever it is that they measure. I've never seen them once measure the wait time for Aboriginal people against non-Indigenous people in hospitals. We don't measure that. Also, and I'm now leading to your answer, Larissa, I agree with Alison too that you can't train people not to be racist or to legislate it away. It has to come from real systemic change. And part of that is measuring the right things. If we measured what police were doing to different people and how they were exercising their discretion. We could actually challenge them on their behaviours, but we don't allow that. So what's going on in the US? There's some really interesting things going on in the US, but I'm not sure that they're that relevant for Australia. There are 16 state legislatures in the United States that have discussed this issue. The majority of the reform bills, however, focus on police oversight, accountability, which we do need more of here, but we also need statistics to hold them accountable. There's regulating the use of force like banning chokeholds. This is part of Alison's point. You can try and train away racism by banning a chokehold, but they'll find some other way of causing harm. And it's not just chokeholds that kill people. Building databases, they are talking there about some accountability and statistics building databases of police stopping and infringements and independent agencies to investigate misconduct. And there's also the defund the police argument, which really is going on here in, say, uh, Burke with the Justice Reinvestment Program. 
and and that's doing some good things. But once again, one thing I find with that program is that it doesn't focus on the police conduct and whether they are enforcing their laws in a discriminatory way. It's all about changing people around the police. Alison, defund the police. What are your thoughts about that? Defunding the police um, is a, it does what it says on the box. It's about taking resources away from policing and police forces as a way of limiting police capacity to do the racist stuff that we keep saying that they're doing um, and also to limit the constant pulling of resources into police departments that just expand and expand and expand and criminalise and criminalise and criminalise uh, marginalised populations. I should also say that while this kind of specific call to defund the police is in its infancy, it gives us the capacity to imagine really different things for it. And that's, for me, where the really exciting thing lies is that you take this funding away from the police and then where do you put it? So the justice reinvest model and I think the defund the police model currently is actually about putting money back into the communities to address the things that people like to tell us that police solve. So things like interpersonal violence, uh, safety in public, the safety of children, etc. We all know that communities are, well I know, and the evidence I think um, the literature backs me up, that communities are really, really well placed to address these things without state intervention, without police intervention and without a carceral approach. So defunding the police kind of has that component of taking resources away where the police can do harm, but also enables community to do meaningful, practical things for themselves on their own terms that look a little bit like healing. And for me, that is the kind of thinking that is going to get us away from having this repetitive discussion again and again and again, is that we need to really radically reimagine, and this is the invitation to radically reimagine, what our responsibilities to one another as a community look like and what they can look like with reduced police resources. And if you believe in abolishing the police, what do they look like without police entirely? Amy, finally a question for you, and obviously there's a lot of what's just been discussed that you have covered in your reporting. So first of all, just wanted to give you a chance to make any additional comments. And then just also, obviously the media plays a really important role in all of this. What should the role of the mainstream media be in this? I think the problem with um, a lot of mainstream media reporting at the moment is that it totally obscures just the level of violence from prisons and policing. And I've noticed it um, paves the way for these really tough law and order policies. So I think understanding just that prisons and policing really are a cancer on society and they hurt victims as well. I mean, I think um, having to go back to court, the parole process, it continually harms and compounds the trauma for victims. So I think trying to understand just the level of violence implicit in policing. And I would also say, I think there needs to be focus on, I think, when um, Aboriginal people are convicted or even just on remand, as soon as they enter the watch house or as soon as they enter a jail, they're immediately seen as guilty. I think we actually have a have to have a conversation around innocence because you'll talk to any black fellow, they'll tell you that they've been told to plead guilty, at least in some part of their journey. Often, you know, you've go to court several times, you'll have different charges. They've at least been told to plead guilty once. And so there has to be an understanding around the fact that a lot of mob are innocent as well. It doesn't mean that they should be hurt when they're incarcerated. But there's a real unspoken issue around innocence in this country. And I think there's so many mob who've been wrongfully convicted, whether it's 
three-year sentence, whether it's just being on remand. I know a lot of Aboriginal, I've heard cases that Aboriginal women have been on remand for four years and then gone to court and been found um, not guilty. So I think that's one of the real unspoken parts of this whole debate, the fact that a lot of mob are actually innocent or they should never have been in jail in the first place, which doesn't excuse any level of brutality within the justice system or that they should be incarcerated in the first place. But I think there is a lot of unspoken parts of these debates that need to be given an airing. And I think uh, mainstream media have to be aware of that, get away from media releases and talking points, read inquests, actually believe families, understand that police always lie. They lie all the time. So I believe blackfellas over the word of police any day. The police have to prove to me that they're telling the truth rather than mob. So I think we have to change the whole narrative, who we believe and everything like that. I don't think mainstream media is up to it at the moment. Like I just can't see them doing that. And if they do do it, often it's like a hunt for Walkleys or their accolades or whatever. You know, they want praise for doing the littlest thing. So, yeah, I have no hope in mainstream media. That's what I always talk about. And, I mean, we're not there with Aboriginal media either, so that's why I say Aboriginal media have to be accountable to our communities as well because we're not just magically going to report properly. You know, it takes a lot of work. So I think that changing the whole narrative, actually believing Aboriginal witnesses over the word of white witnesses is a key part of it. And, yeah, just keeping, I think, the pressure on and ensuring that this moment isn't wasted. I know I've personally been very inspired by this current moment and changed a lot of my thinking about what you know, I should be doing in my career. So I think just ensuring that this moment does not go away and that we're not going to let it go away, but ensuring that we keep working towards a future where our mob aren't just locked up from childhood to to death. Thanks, Amy. That's a great note to finish the panel discussion on. Dr. Amanda Porter, who introduced the session and is a Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at Melbourne Law School, I've asked her to give some concluding remarks Thanks, Lisa. That's very generous and not necessarily true. But I just want to say how humbled I am to be on the panel alongside you, Larissa and Amy, Alison, Eddie and George. So much so that I guess five minutes is perfect for me. And rather than add anything too much, I'll just make several brief points by way of closing based on some notes that I've made. So the first point, just in summation, is that there seems to be a resounding consensus from the panel that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lives don't matter in the Australian legal system and that, in fact, the settler colonial legal system remains one of the most significant ongoing sites of colonisation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. And this is particularly true of the criminal justice system. And as we've spoken about the police, the coronial process and the criminal jurisdiction in particular. Eddie spoke about the apathy and complicity. George has noted the general denial of the Australian public with reference to the Dungay case. It's how it's been a system which has never delivered a conviction, let alone a work safe a safety complaint, let alone disciplinary action or closure for families, but has rather perpetuated what he uh, termed discourses of deficit, which is just drenched through these narratives. Amy spoke about the comfortableness and disposability and the blindness of the Australian public to state-sanctioned violence, as well as the general benevolent perception that many Australians still hold dear to in terms of inability to convict police officers. And we saw that play out in relation to the police officer, Chris Hurley, in terms of the failure to secure a conviction by a Townsville jury. Similarly, I think that's another parallel that we saw in terms of the police officer who killed George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, 
was a notorious police officer who was moved around from station to station. And I note that similarly with Chris Hurley, there's a pattern is just one example of many police officers who not only escaped without conviction, but was promoted and sent to another local area command. And I think it's important as engaged citizens to think through the implications of the ideas that we discussed, such as the rule of law, and as well as the ability for public institutions, such as the police, institutions that are built on racist violence and colonial violence, and their ability to reform themselves, to transform and eventually come good. And I want to pick up this point in a moment and bring in another observation that I just was listening in and and cheering with Alison's point about uh, defund the police. And that's been something that I've also enjoyed and been following with great interest. The New York Police Department's decision to slash its budget by US $1 billion. The LA City Council cut the LAPD budget by $150 million. Portland, Oregon uh, shifted US $4.8 million from the state police to community safety, in addition to the example that Larissa mentioned about the Minneapolis State Police, which was disbanded recently, as well as um, several contracts were rescinded by the state police. So I think these developments, as well as George's example of justice reinvestment in Burke. Um, But these developments are interesting, fascinating to me and and has been really interesting to watch in terms of their boldness, also in terms of the timeframe, because I know that the US similarly has a history of national reports and state inquiries and uh, recommendations, including in particular the Christopher Commission, which investigated the police beating of Rodney King in 1991, which is the same year that the Royal Commission published its findings. What was interesting about to me about all of this was that I, I find it so refreshing that instead of the, just the observation that I think we've seen more in terms of US developments in the last three months than we have in the last three decades in the US at least in terms of this shift that Alison was speaking to about rather than investing more money in more training programs, more anti-racism training as if such a thing is possible. It's interesting that with Minneapolis and with the LAPD, they're the two jurisdictions which have been held up as the poster child, I guess, of anti-racism and implicit bias training. I think that's interesting and I think it's a refreshing thing that we're now talking about taking away from the police and and investing that money in people and in communities. And in Australia, although the defund the police has formed part of the rallying cries of campaigns and on the grounds at rallies and the cries of family members in terms of what people want at rallies, We haven't yet seen an announcement of concrete commitments to defund the police, and this is in spite of record budgets that have been delivered in the last two years at least. I looked it up last year, the Victorian Police Service were awarded a record $3.5 billion budget, including 1,655 new police recruits, and in New South Wales, $4.4 billion in 2018, including 1,500 new police recruits. So I think this is a really critical time, and I just wanted to reiterate, Alison worded it as feeling torn at the current moment, and... Amy mentioned some excitement and I'm, you know, I think this, I see this as an opportunity to shift the narrative and I hope that we draw in some of the lessons from Burke and Justice Reinvestment, which I've been following with great interest. But I do note, the cynical part of me notes that while there has been experiments in Cowra and in Burke with Justice Reinvestment, that we have seen simultaneously these record budgets in New South Wales where Cowra and Burke are both located, both in terms of police and in terms of 
historic contracts to Serco to build a mega prison, the Clarence Correctional Centre, 1,700 bed, the most expensive and the most significant contract in Australian history. Just to wrap up, the only other point I wanted to make was that from an historical perspective, the idea of defunding or abolishing the police isn't new or even necessarily that radical. And as a police historian, I find it interesting how recent the history of the development of the police is. So emerging in England in the late 18th century and in Australia from the 19, sorry, 1830s onwards. So from the perspective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in this continent, that's, you know, 200 years is not a very long time. And what's interesting to me, especially with respect to the development of the first forerunners to the state police um, in English speaking history, that's the Thames Water Police in 1798, that at that time the police was an incredibly unpopular idea. The idea of the police was seen to be fundamentally opposed to English ideas of liberty and freedom to such an extent that Jeremy Bentham, who wrote that first draft police bill, wrote it in an anonymous capacity because he wanted to distance himself from what he saw as being anti-libertarian. And I dream that we could get back to that point where it's a popular idea that we don't need the police and that it's anti-libertarian and against our um, national ideas. And to wrap up, I just wanted to, to reiterate what Alison said about the expertise in communities and how when we look outside the sphere of policing and the police, there's so many exciting opportunities about ways of creating safety and building communities. And as Alison said, this work is already being done, the expertise is already there and being undertaken every day by Aboriginal elders and leaders and committed individuals who dedicate their lives to community initiatives like this, whether it be community housing, wellbeing, healing and support groups, night patrols, safety initiatives, and doing all of this in a volunteer capacity. So I just wanted to finish by acknowledging the emotional labour of all of the people that dedicate their life to doing this work very humbly in in this space. That's Dr Amanda Porter, Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at the Melbourne University Law School. She was speaking on the program in August and was joined by journalist and PhD student Amy Maguire, Senior Indigenous Fellow at the Melbourne University Law School, Eddie Cabillo, lawyer, poet and senior researcher, Alison Whitaker, and human rights lawyer and director of the National Justice Project, George Newhouse. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when a group of the country's most articulate academic and legal minds propose a roadmap towards policing and justice reform in Australia. Well, it's a surprisingly difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, to be, to be positive about it. I mean, we know that there's more Aboriginal people in prison. We know that police violence is a, a sort of ongoing problem. The time when the Royal Commission reported was a relatively optimistic time about bringing about change in the justice system. And I think what we've seen is often progressively more punitive approaches to law and order. So having said all that, what can we say that's positive? Well, I think there are positive things that can be pointed to, and that's particularly in relation to the role of Aboriginal communities in themselves taking on these issues and whether it's engaging within the current system through things like the Murray Court or the Koori Court, Noongar Courts and so forth. I mean, they're all post-Royal Commission phenomena I mean, and they're positive, I think. 
We've seen other areas where there's been the growth in Aboriginal community-run programs for young people, for adults that are in contact with the justice system. We've seen the development over the last decade of justice reinvestment and you know, the most well-known example of that is in Burke, which has had quite significant positive impacts on contact with the justice system. But there are lots of other less known or less well-known programs under justice reinvestment that are running around the place by Aboriginal community organisations. Port Adelaide's an example. Halls Creek, where there's some great work going on there under the ideas of justice reinvestment for young people, not only in Halls Creek, but in surrounding communities like Warman and Balgo and so on. So I think there are positive things that are happening at a community level that are Aboriginal-driven and controlled. And I think, yeah, despite the kind of vast array of negative stuff surrounding all of this, at a community level, we see some really great things happening. I was going to come back to you, but I think I'll go into my last question for you now. But I was wondering what your thoughts around the defund the police approach could be going forward, especially in its impact on how we may look at law and order in the future. Yeah, look, I think that the greatest thing about the defund the police is that it captures the need to think differently. And I think Lyndon was sort of alluding to this earlier as well, that, yeah, we need to reimagine what's happening in relation to policing. And I don't think it's going to be an easy task. I don't think the police, no matter how rationally we might discuss it with them, are going to voluntarily give up power. And we can see the problem straight away with the current attempt to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility, which police have not been supportive of in general because they don't want to lose the power to arrest 10-year-olds. You know, And if we can't get over that barrier... How are we going to get over the bigger ones around defund the police? But look, it does open up an opportunity to think about how we shift resources to communities, to community-based organisations, to services for people, rather than seeing every problem in society as a policing problem. And we do that. We've just done it with COVID-19. I mean, who was the lead agency in New South Wales? It was the police. That speaks a volume about how we deal with public health issues. We need this new discourse, and I think the defund the police slogan, it is a slogan, you know, captures a different way of thinking about how we do things. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. 